Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, till now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let me read to you also, because I wanted to preach more of the passage here from this chapter in Philippians, verses 5 to verse 11, in addition to what was just read. Um, this is what Paul continues to say earlier. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. Um, this is our, our sort of, I guess we're calling it a missions month, and basically we just want to emphasize uh, the work of missions and what missions is and why we should be involved, and we start, kicked it off last Sunday. Um, talking about the heart of the Father, and I think the heart of the Father is a heart of missions, actually. And so if, even if you're not called to do mission stuff um, as a church, uh, it is something that I think we need to make a priority. But today, I, I want to kind of not directly talk about missions, but kind of in a roundabout way, something that's relevant to all of us, okay? I was reading this sociologist study, and the sociologist um, was talking about a generation of people in our country who go through life with a kind of discontent, a constant discontent. <clears throat> he was talking about, uh, it was a study about a rejection of, of, of a, a generation of people who reject things the way they are, always. And therefore, they are always complaining, right? And he had an interesting thesis, okay? Just listen to what he says. What he basically said was this, that in many ways, this contented generation of people is a byproduct of small families. That's his thesis. This complaining group of people, always discontent, is a byproduct of small families. The CIA did a census report back around the early 2000s, and they realized that families are getting smaller and smaller in our country. The average number of children per family, back then they said, was 1.8. 1.8, and they said that the families are getting smaller and smaller, and they're moving toward one-child families, if that at all. Most families in America, at that study shows, as that study shows, have either none or one or two children. And his thesis, the sociologist that I was reading, says this, that where you have families where the average is two or less, he said it works like this. When you only have one child or two, they get up in the morning and mom says to them, what would you like for lunch today? And they say, well, I'd like peanut butter sandwich or maybe I'd like a tuna sandwich or whatever. So she goes into the kitchen and she makes that. And then when they go off to school, she says, well, uh, what would you like for dinner when you come home? 
And they say, well, well, maybe I like this, or maybe I like to have this. And they say, okay, well, I'll have this or that ready for you. And by the way, when will you get home? Uh, what time should I plan dinner? And the kids say, well, maybe, you know, I've got stuff to do after school, but we'll be home around 5, 5.30, 6, maybe. And, and the mom says, fine, okay. But if you were raised in a family of four, five, or six, and you get up in the morning, it's different. You get handed a lunch bag in a lot of families, right? You get up in the morning, you get handed a bag. And when you leave the house, your mother or father tells you, dinner is at 5.30. You're here, and you eat, Right? And then when you go to a table in a small family and your mother has broken her back to prepare some kind of cuisine that she's taken out of an exotic cookbook and your child takes one bite of it, in a typical one or two child family, the kid says, I don't like this, I don't want this. But in a family of five or six children, somebody in their family says, I don't like this. What happens is that the kid next to him says, good, I'll take it, right? And the difference here is this, that where you have a small family... His thesis was this, the system bends to the child. But where you have a larger family, the child has to bend to the system. Now, in a country where the average number of children in a family is 1.8, you have young people growing up in an environment where the system bends to them. And his thesis was, therefore, we have child-centered parenting. Now, think about this in terms of church, sociologically. Think about doing church in that kind of generation and culture, a discontented, sort of entitled kind of generation. You find a church, it's good, it's biblical, but your children don't like it for whatever reason, you leave. And when you grow up in that environment where you grow up in a situation where you get to eat what you want, you get to wear what you want, your parent will take you anywhere you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, it's a freedom that they experience. And a generation of people that are growing up in this kind of situation tend to not like conformity. Because they've experienced that freedom growing up in their family, they don't want to be controlled. But what's happening, the sociologist points out, is this, that when they grow up and they get a job and they get into the real world, nobody at work says to them, well, how would you like your office decorated, right? Nobody asks them, what time would you like to take your lunch break? You're put on schedules and deadlines and and responsibilities, and in essence, you're forced to conform, And we call that, at least in my generation, responsibility. But what happens is, when they grow up from an environment that they feel they can control, and they don't like conformity, they don't like being controlled, in essence, they reject that kind of responsibility. And so, a generation of people have a slower growth into responsible adulthood. And as a result, very often discontented. Nothing is ever enough. They're always critical, mentally, constantly attacking everything. A whole generation in our country like this have grown up this way. And the sociologists refer to them as millennials. Millennials. I had to look it up. What what exactly, how old do you have to be in a millennial? And according to the Pew Research, anyone born between 1981 and 1996, which today is 26 years old to 41 is considered a millennial. Anyone born from 1996 and onward 
1997 then, afterwards, is now part of Generation, what they call Z. Now, I don't know what the characteristics of Generation Z is, but they're not kids anymore, right? They're not children anymore. 26 to 41, that's, that's kind of where we are. And there's a culture then, he argues, that we have is a culture of now discontent, a culture of what he would say complaint. Now, let's think about this. I'm not saying that there aren't things that are worthy of our complaints, right? There are, there are some things that we should not be, I guess, so happy about. But let me give you some perspective. I mean, if you were living in Cambodia during the Pol Pot genocide during the late 70s, that's a problem to complain about, right? That should be upsetting because you might not survive, right? And, you know, sure, I get it. I, I'm not saying that, and I do this all the time, we grumble about getting old, uh, complain and discontent. I'm getting old, I'm getting old, turning 40 old, turning 50 old, and we, we have midlife crisis. And it, I understand it's a, it's a milestone, these ages, but... Let's put that in some perspective. There are countries in the world, like in Africa, that never get depressed when turning 40, that never get depressed when turning 50. They never have a midlife crisis. Do you know why? Because they don't live long enough to have one. A place where the average lifespan is like 37, they don't get depressed if anyone turns the big 40. They congratulate them. You made it. Right? Just a little perspective. I, I mean, I understand, because I'm, I'm the same way. Your grocery bill is, is too high, and maybe you're trying to save some money, and so your wallet is a little bit tighter, and so that kind of means that you just can't eat the way you want to eat all the time. You can't maybe go out to all the restaurants that you want to eat. You can't order certain kinds of food. It, it can be stressful. I get it. But let's put some perspective on it, especially when you realize that each day, between 7,750 people and 15,345 people in the world die from hunger and malnutrition, according to a study in 2021. Every day in this world, 7,000, between 7 and 15,000 are dying from hunger, malnutrition. And according to this one census, it means this, 11 people die from hunger in the world each minute. Each minute. <laughs> Each minute. Now, of course, most of us in our country, we, you know, we don't worry about malnutrition too much, right? Uh, we don't worry if we get to eat. We just worry about what we get to eat. We don't complain about malnutrition as an epidemic. Because in our country, obesity is an epidemic. Right? I was in Africa one time um, talking to this uh, chief of the Maasai tribe, and we we're just talking about culture, and you know, their whole tribe is so skinny. And, and you know, we had a young group of people in our team, and he asked me, uh, why, are, why is your team so big? Literally. And I thought he meant in the size of our team, like we had 10 people. But he wasn't talking about the size. He was talking about the individuals. <laughs> and he literally asked me, why is your team so big? And I looked at my team. They're not really big, at least by, by my standards. I'm bigger than all of them. They're not that big. 
And, and then we're looking at his people, and they're so skinny. And, and he was telling me about how getting food was really hard, and, and a lot of people just pass away from disease because of malnutrition, right? And we were talking about it, and I said, well, in our country, uh, obesity is a problem. Uh, we eat really bad food, and we eat a lot of it. And you know what he did? He laughed. He laughed, and he said, we die because we don't eat enough. You die because you eat too much. And he starts giggling. He starts laughing. And I was like, I don't know if that's nice, but it is kind of interesting, isn't it? It's just a perspective. Now, maybe it's an oversimplified view that sociologists has. Take it with a grain of salt. I, I don't know how, what you think of this. But whatever the case, I do want to say this. Discontentment, uh, grumbling and complaining isn't just a millennial thing. Okay? It's in every generation. It's in every person to some degree. Every culture to some degree. It's even in the Bible. You ever read Numbers chapter 11? Read Numbers chapter 11. Just the title, the subheading, what does it say? The people complain. Okay? It's there in the Bible. Israel was saved from Egypt. They escaped from slavery with their lives. They're free. And immediately, Numbers 11 says what they do in the wilderness. Oh, no, not manna again. How about a steak, Moses? Right? That's what they say. We, we got to eat meat in Egypt. And then they say, well, we're thirsty. What are we going to drink? Oh, no, not this bitter water again from a rock. How about a seltzer? Right? Maybe a little bit of lemon. And they complain about leadership. Oh, no, Moses, what are you doing? Right? Where are we going? How long is this going to take? When are we going to get there? When can we stop? I should have stayed in Egypt. So even in the Bible, a whole generation of people, not just ours, not just our culture, it was there as well, that were discontent always and complaining. It's everyone. To some degree, it's everyone. And here in Philippians chapter 2, into a culture of discontent and a heart of grumbling, Paul gives us, in verse 14, a very simple command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You can't get more practical than this, okay? Very mundane, very simple. How should I live as a Christian? What should I do as a Christian? Paul says in verse 14, do all things, do everything without grumbling or complaining. It's a command. Do all things without grumbling. Okay, how? How is that possible? What does Paul mean by that? What things? All things, everything? And we need to remember that Paul never tells you to do anything without first telling you what you've been given and what's already been done. And the command, do all things without complaining or grumbling, has a basis, a foundation, and that's in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he says just before he commands them. Don't complain. He says, work out your salvation. Now, let's not get confused here. Paul is not saying, work for your salvation, because after all, that's impossible. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, salvation is not of works, but it's faith. So when he talks about salvation, working that out, what does he mean? And he reads the earlier chapter, earlier verses of chapter 2, and this is where he talks about Jesus. 
He says, like, you know, here's Jesus, the form of God, didn't count himself equal with God. He emptied himself. He became like one of us. He was in human form. He humbled us. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in verse 9 in our chapter, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every name should bow on heaven and earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So earlier, before verse 14, he's talking about what Jesus did for you. He's talking about what you received because of what Jesus did. You received grace. You received life. You received love. You received a Savior, a King, who humbled himself, went to the cross, gave up his life to give you everything that he has. And so in verse 12, when he says, therefore, work out your salvation, what he's essentially saying is this. Live like it. Live like it. Live like you've been saved. Live like you have received. Verse 9 to 11. Live like Jesus is highly exalted in your life. Live in a way that shows that his name is above everything else in your life. And that your knee bows only before him on earth and in heaven and you worship him alone. Live out what you confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is really Lord. This is what Paul is saying when he says in verse 12, work out your salvation. Believe it, now live it. Now here's the question. So what does someone who actually lives this out look like? What does that person look like? Many things, okay? But verse 14, a person who lives this out is someone who's doing everything without grumbling. What is a person so lofty? Jesus is number one in my life. I bow to him and him alone. I confess him as my Lord and Savior. What kind of a person does that look like? And you would think right now, this is a person that goes to missions. This is a person that that sells everything that he has and, and, and goes and follows Jesus. This is a person who gives up his life all for him. That's how radical you think it would be if you say something like this. But, he says, a person like this does everything without complaining. Kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Do all things without grumbling. See, so, seems simple, so mundane, and yet I think so important. Notice this in verse 14. He's not telling you what you should do. He's telling you the way you should do it. Verse 14 is not an action. It's an attitude. All things, whatever things you do, without grumbling and dispute. Now, why does Paul say that? Well, because he's a realist, he knows life isn't always going to go your way. He knows about those everyday annoyances with people and places and situations. He knows about difficult children or difficult parents and traffic jams and flat tires. He knows all about those things, and he wants you to remember that you've got a God who has saved you. You've got a Jesus who loves you, and he's committed to you. Committed to what? What is Jesus committed to you for? To make you happy? No. To grow you, to change you for his glory and your blessing. He's going to do, verse 13, work in you to work out, to help you live out that salvation which he has given to you. All right, look, this is a perspective. 
God doesn't want you to just go through trials and troubles so that you could gripe all the time. He wants you to grow through them. And you see, my, my problem is that I, I don't really want to pray all the time. But there are things that happen in my life, hard and difficult things that are worth praying for, teaching me to pray. I don't always trust in God in everything. But there's those grumbling and complaining moments that's happened to me where God is working in me to teach me to trust. I'm not so grateful and thankful for everything that I have all the time, but in those ungrateful moments, God is working in me to help me to see how grateful I should be. Most of the time, we don't think about what God is doing, what he could be doing in our everyday moments. When annoying and difficult and hard things happen, we just think, well, they just happen. It's just the way it is, and then we, we react. But here's the point. If you know, if you really, really knew that in all things, even the little things, that God is working in you to live out your faith and salvation, then don't you think in those difficult moments, if you knew that God had purpose and reason to grow you, to shape you, to strengthen and define your faith, don't you think that in those moments it's worth considering a different attitude other than just to complain? You know, those of you who exercise, um, you know, I've been trying to get back into some running, but it's, it's my age and out of shape, but my knees hurt now all the time. It's painful. You know, and I'm going to admit, I... I'm grumbling all the way through the run, whatever it is. But what keeps you going? Because you know there's a reward. You know it's for good. You know there's a purpose and a reason. So you endure. So Paul is saying here is that when you realize that God is working in your salvation, in your life, to help you to work that out in your life, the basic attitude is an attitude that doesn't grumble. Okay, now let me keep going here, verse 15. How does this work? He says in verse 15, don't grumble or complain with disputes, but that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Verse 14, do all things without complaints. Verse 15, where do I do it? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Listen to Paul's choice of words. He says, do all things without complaint in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That phrase, crooked and twisted, is found elsewhere in the Bible, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. And there, those, that same phrase describes the Israelites in their constant grumbling and complaining, right, in the wilderness, God called them, in their complaining and grumbling, a crooked and twisted generation. And the problem back then was that in the midst of Israel's struggles, right, and they were real struggles, okay, they were real struggles, the problem was all they could see was their struggles. They were fixated on it. Whether it was a lack of food, lack of water, lack of resources, lack of leadership, they failed to see over and over again, no matter how many times God got them through, no matter how many times God provided, no matter how many times God had saved them, they failed to see 
that he's never left them. In their momentary sporadic troubles, as real and hard as they were, they failed to realize and trust in the constant activity of God, the constant faithfulness of God in the midst of them. The reason why grumbling and complaining was such an unacceptable behavior to God is because, in essence, it was a deep ingratitude in the face of God's saving grace and continuing activity. It was a denial of his goodness. Grumbling and complaining is working against your salvation rather than working salvation out in your life. And Paul is saying to us, you, in your generation, don't do that. Do all things without grumbling. Why? Because we have more reason than even the Israelites did. Verses 5 through 8 in Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus, who came down, became like one of us, humbled himself, obedient to the point of death on a cross. You have more reason than the Israelites did. Why? Here's what I mean. Paul is saying, I've been saved by someone who was God but became like one of us. I follow someone who was a king but became a servant. And as such, I follow someone who had every right to grumble and complain about what he had to do and for whom he had to do it for. But he humbled himself and was obedient even to death on a cross. Not a peep. Not a peep from him. See, because I'm sure that when people saw Jesus dying on a cross like a thief, I'm sure they thought, what good could come out of this? This kind of pain, this kind of Suffering, this kind of injustice, this kind of evil, it's just bad. Look at this person dying on a cross. It's just trouble. What good could come out of that? Not realizing all along, even then, while on the cross, the constant activity of God was still there. Even in the face of death, God is still working, not just for himself, but for us. That Jesus, while on the cross, in that dark and difficult moment, which no one could understand why at the time, God was still there working out our salvation. You see, Paul is not saying you have nothing to grumble about or complain. He's not saying pretend everything's okay in your life. But he's saying this. Sometimes there are real struggles and sometimes real hardships and real difficulties, and they feel great they do but he wants to remind you that what and who you have in Jesus Christ is even greater even greater so live out in your life the greater that's how he's trying to encourage us in a generation that might be discontent in the moment. Now, what does this have to do with missions? Okay? 
Well, you said last week that the heart of the Father, hopefully we see that, and is really a heart of the mission, okay? But look at our passage in Philippians chapter 2, these famous verses in verses 9 to 11. Here's Jesus. This is what he did on a cross. Why? So that God had highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you hear that? It's not just your name. Every name, above every name. It's not just that your knee would bow before him. Every knee would bow. It's not just your tongue that would confess, but every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the mission. God's mission, the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't just for you. It isn't just for us. It's for everyone. And that means that God is going to use people and churches and organizations to do this and to make it happen. But I'm going to tell you this. He will not use grumbling and complaining people to do it. He will not use a grumbling and complaining generation to do it. He will not use a people who talk about the goodness and the greatness of God and then live like he really isn't. Why? Because it makes him look bad. Why would I want to be a Christian when it looks like you don't really want to be a Christian? Why would I want to be a Christian and go to church when it seems like you don't really care? Why would your children want to keep going to church when it looks like mom and dad doesn't really care? Missions and doing missions, however you want to define that, sending missionaries, being a missionary, it's hard. You need patience, you need to be flexible, you need to trust in God's timing and provision. Grumbling and complaining hearts shows resistance to change. Grumbling and complaining hearts shows weakness in your patience. Grumbling and complaining shows lack of trust in God's planning and timing. Whatever generation you think you are, millennial or not, I think Paul's telling us, don't be part of a grumbling generation. A grumbling and complaining generation is a dying generation. Look what happened to Israel. A whole generation of people going through all this, they never made it to the promised land. They never made it. It's a distraction, complaining. It's an obstacle in the way of living out the promises of God for you, but also the plans of God for his glory. It's so basic. It's something I struggle with. I do. You know, I try to preach the right thing, and then on the way home, I'm like, come on, what the heck? Why does this like, have to be like this? Why is it people like that? Why is it changing? You know, the word grumbling, it's an onomatopoeia. Uh, an onomatopoeia means that the word, what it means is what it sounds like. You know, grumble, 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 grumble. You know, that's all I do. And so this is a reminder for me. Look at the greater. Does that mean anything to me? Then verse 14. Then do everything 
without grumbling and disputing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We, we need your grace, especially us. We sometimes fail to remember and how much we have already with our family, our children, our jobs, our provisions, our food, our clothes, our homes. We are so easily forgetful and easily accustomed to any blessing that we've been given. We become dissatisfied, discontent. We become desiring of more, even more. And oftentimes, Lord, to wake us up, it, it takes something really hard to happen in our life to again to appreciate the very basic things we take for granted. And when those things happen, we sometimes question, why God, why me, why God, why me? And maybe well, the reason is right in front of our face because you, we do not appreciate and love the blessings we already have and we need to depend on you more and more than we ever have. So, Lord, we pray, show us grace and mercy. Teach us to see what you see, not just what we see. Help us to look to you, to count our blessings, to see, Lord, your abundance, your goodness in the midst of what looks like lack and hardship and difficulty. And as hard as it might be, teach us what it means not to grumble, but to see and to be thankful for what we have in you despite what we don't here and now. When we do this, Lord, people around us see what we say and do is, is true. But not only that, you are glorified and we are continually blessed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.